brought you this morning the word apocalypse. I wonder what you would make of it. Perhaps some of your minds would immediately recall to mind the 1979 American Vietnam War drama. Oh, run back. Um, the American War drama, um, starring amongst others Marlon Brando and Martin Sheen. If you're a bit more savvy than that, but still a Hollywood buff, then films like 2012 Doomsday, Deep Impact, or um, The uh, Day After Tomorrow, these might be the sort of films that would come to mind as you think about that word. In fact, all of these films are described by the IMBD, the International Movie Database, a source that's often quoted on the quiz Pointless, um, if you're in the habit of watching that. Um, that source describes all of these films as amongst the best apocalypse movies. But IMBD has actually got it wrong. Not about the quality of the movies themselves, they're fine, but about the classification. But in fairness, they're not the only ones that get it wrong. I looked at one online dictionary and it described the word apocalypse as meaning the complete final destruction of the world. Christian sources, particularly Christian sects, have often made the same mistake because that's not what apocalypse means or is about at all. They confuse or conflate two concepts, indeed combining them into one set of ideas. I'm afraid I'm going to have to get a little bit more technical and jargony at this point, so I beg your forgiveness in advance. But let me first of all get this idea of apocalypse as being about these catastrophic events out of the way. Apocalypse or apocalypsis, which is what it is in the Greek, is a word that simply means disclosure or revelation. Which is why the last book of the Bible that we know as Revelation is actually in the Greek version called the Apocalypse. It means revealing or disclosure. But these films that I put up posters of are not dealing with any kind of disclosure or revelation at all, but with the imminent destruction of the world. And here comes that technical word. It's the word eschaton, a word meaning end things, from which we get the derivative eschatology. Okay, that's a big word, so maybe we need to unpack it. Perhaps some of you remember this. Anthony, oh, congratulations on your exam results. Grandma, I failed. You failed? What do you mean you failed? I mean I failed. Maths, English, physics, geography, German, woodwork, art. I failed. You didn't pass anything? Pottery. 
Pottery, very useful. Anthony, people will always need plates. Anything else? And sociology. An ology? It gets an ology and it says it's failed. You get an ology, you're a scientist. Whether it's well done or hard luck, a phone call says a lot. Well, of course, the word ology just means study. Whether it be geology or topology or sociology or theology or indeed eschatology, it simply means thinking deeply about these matters. And so today we need to think through this strange eschatology, this peculiar passage from Luke's gospel. It doesn't seem as easy as the parables that Jesus told. Parables which we often think are easy because on one level they're so simple. Until of course we realise what the kick in the tail is. But sometimes if it's a parable or if it's a narrative story we find that much easier to cope with. But this is almost bewildering stuff of Jesus in response to his disciples. So maybe we need to set things just a wee bit in context. In the previous chapter of Luke's gospel, Jesus was in the temple teaching. And it was a period of tension and of conflict. His authority to teach was challenged by the temple officials. And in response to them, he told one of his parables. It's a parable which is depicted in the screen there. A parable that's sometimes called the parable of the wicked tenants. Because it's about the rejection by these tenants of the vineyard owner's son. It's an allusion to Jesus himself. As the vineyard was the recognized symbol of Israel. And so he was simply saying to them that you're actually rejecting me. The one who is the owner of this vineyard's son. And it led to him quoting Psalm 118 verse 22. The words, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone or most important stone of all. He also confounded those who tried to catch him out, if you remember, with reference to the payment of the temple tax. He said to them, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and unto God the things that are God's. They were confounded. They didn't know how to respond. And he also entered into a debate with them about the resurrection. The Sadducees rejected the idea of resurrection. They believed that when you were dead, that was it. And Jesus told them bluntly, they were wrong. God said, I am the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. I'm the God of the living. And he concluded this period of conflict with them. One that can be well described as a period of confrontation. By saying to the disciples and to the peripheral listeners 
a pair of paraphrasing here, but he basically said to them, beware of these teachers of the law because these show-offs will be punished most severely for what they do. Hardly words of reconciliation at that stage. So that's the background to all of this. And as Jesus and the disciples leave the temple, they look up and they see how wonderful and marvelous this construction is. But he says to them, all of this is going to be cast down. Not one stone is going to be left on top of the other. The equivalent passage in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 24 has incidentally been called the Little Apocalypse. Actually has the disciples asking three questions. When will this happen? What will be the sign of your coming? And what will be the sign of the end of the age? The last two seemingly thought of as being one event. So maybe this confusion between eschatology and apocalypsis actually goes back as far as the disciples. But in Luke's gospel, the one we're dealing with this morning, there's a slightly different emphasis. And there are two questions according to Luke's account. When will this take place and what will be the sign that this is about to happen now because of this slightly truncated question we can all too easily think of Jesus response as being about the end of the age the eschaton but that's not the question and it's not the answer that he responds to or gives Now as to the first question, Jesus does not give a specific answer as to when this would happen. But it's clear when he's speaking that it lies sometime in their future. A time when he knows he will be gone from their midst. He's already made very clear to them that he's heading to Jerusalem and to his death. But at the same time, he also taught them that he would rise again. And so he cautions them to be careful of anyone who claims to come in his name and predict that the end of the age is near. It is not, he says. When you hear of wars and uprisings, do not be frightened, he said. These things must happen first. But the end will not come right away. Now, if you were living in certain parts of the Ukraine right now, perhaps not in Kershon, where there's a, no doubt a great sense of relief, but in many other parts still, you might feel as if the end of your world has come. And as nations have risen up against nation over the centuries... And we have witnessed dramatic turmoil to the earth, more of which, according to the predictions of the climate change scientists, has yet to come. There's always a temptation to some to say that the end of the world is near. 
sure we could all remember approaching the millennium how much there was about all of this much loved by strange groups today I'm going to resist any such temptation to speculate on when the end will be there's no point Jesus said nobody knows except God even he didn't know I'm going to resist that temptation partly because the lectionary passage we're dealing with today ends at verse 19. It's the next bit that talks about the end times. But also because the verses which we are really dealing with actually talk a point towards what in the end is the destruction of Jerusalem, not the end of the age. Now history tells us that in AD 70, when the Roman general Titus, later the emperor of that name, laid siege to Jerusalem, he tore down the temple. Only the western wall, and that's the, the wall of the mound on which the temple was built, not even the temple itself. That's the only bit that remains standing. So Jesus' prediction about the destruction of Jerusalem and not one stone would stand on top of another came true came true in AD 70 about 30 odd years after he himself had died but that was not the end of the world may have been the end of the world for the Jews living in Jerusalem but not for us so if we stick closely to what our passage is about rather than what it's speculated to be about. What does Jesus actually disclose or reveal? What does he advise? Well, what he revealed or disclosed to the disciples was that his followers would have to endure a time of persecution. And we, of course, know partly from the book of Acts and partly from history, that the early Christians did indeed come under a lot of pressure. Not only were they expelled from the synagogues, remember these early Christians were Jewish, but they were expelled from the synagogues for proclaiming this Christos as their Lord. But they were actually hunted down by the Jewish authorities in the early days. We only need to look to the words of the Apostle Paul, who himself testified to having been one of their persecutors. And then, of course, in the reign of the Roman Emperor Nero, who died two years before Jerusalem was besieged, the Christians in Rome were accused of burning down parts of Rome and ruthlessly dealt with. Convenient scapegoats for what some people believe was a deliberate act of Nero himself and even if it wasn't him that set the place on fire we all remember Nero played the fiddle as Rome burnt now what is called the great persecution did not come for another couple of hundred years that came under successive Roman emperors in the early 300s. But the seeds of destruction were already sown. And Jesus knew that his radical message would challenge the nations 
would challenge the lifestyle of the vested interests. For the last 300 years and more, we in this country have not known firsthand what religious persecution entails. We need to go back to the time of the Covenanters to remember when it happened here. Nor indeed thanks to the men and women who today we have rightly honoured once more have we as a nation known what it means to be a subjugate people? We haven't, we haven't been invaded since the Norman Conquest. And so it's hard for us living in this free, liberal, western society to grasp some of what this entailed with any meaningful depth. But of course there are living amongst us today people who have fled from Ukraine, from Iraq, from Syria and still a few, now very few, who fled from the Nazis in Central Europe. People who know what it is like. We also, of course, know that in many parts of the world today there are Christians who are still suffering for their faith in Jesus Christ. People who stand up for what they believe in and suffer the penalty. So yes, maybe his words do not be frightened. And his words stand firm and you will win life for them may seem much more potent than they do for us who do not face these problems, at least not now and not yet. But who knows whether that day will come again. But these words are nevertheless just that, words of hope and assurance, and they are for all of us. For whatever fearful events we might face in life, the great signs of the times for us are the empty cross and the empty tomb. The signs of assurance that our Jesus is risen and in charge and that his promise that not a hair of your head will perish. So stand firm and you will win life. Yes, these words are true for us all and for all time and for all eternity. They are the promises of the Son of God. And therefore, I'm going to invite you now, although I simply remain seated for this, I'm going to invite you now to share with me in reciting a couple of apostolic affirmations that are somewhat older they're not there. Oh, there we go. Right, here we go. Um, these are from First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 14, and Romans 4, 8 to 9. Believed not only to be the words of Paul, but words that are used, are well used in a creedal situation. So just remain seated, let's share them. 
We believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will take back with Jesus those who have died believing in him. If we live, it is for the Lord we live. And if we die, it is for the Lord we die. For Christ died and rose to life in order to be the Lord of the living and of the dead. Amen.